This is me, Jeremy Holt, and I'm here with David Warner. Hi, Dave. So, Dave, an interesting test match in which, of course, in the end, it was the weather that won the day. And so the match was rained off in the end and ended up with a draw, which interestingly is England's first draw since the new era under Brendan McCullen and Ben Stokes. What did you make of it? Well, I think you mentioned the weather was the winner in the end. The final two days were pretty much rained off, apart from a bit of play on the Saturday afternoon. And I think Barney Roney in The Guardian sort of summed it up where he said, cricket in England remains at bottom, a conversation about the weather that got out of hand. Because how much did we speak about the weather for two days? How much were we fascinated by the weather systems coming in off the Atlantic for two whole days? Uh, so the weather definitely is a it's an it's an interesting game cricket it's one of the few games where the weather plays such a major a major role and that's the way it goes sometimes I think this game we saw England playing with a, a real freedom in in their first innings a real freedom where we saw a big score compiled by the England cricket team I'll just check that actual figure and it was 592 all out off 107.4 overs. So we were rattling it along at over five and over, which is, you know, an unprecedented level of scoring in in a test match, especially over that duration of, of, of overs. So, and we saw some incredible performances. We saw Zach Crawley at the top of the innings who scored 189. And a lot has been leveled at, Zach Crawley around his inconsistency. Yeah. And what I found interesting about this was Zach Crawley himself after the test match when he was given the man of the match award and he was interviewed and he said, he said this, he said, today was a good day. Well, in fact, this was after the, after he actually hit the runs on that particular day. Today was a good day. I rode my luck at times, but I also hit some good shots. That's the way I play. I'm quite streaky, but then I go on a run. The coach and captain tell me to go out and have an impact. They do not they they do not want me to lose days like this. And if I try to be consistent, I would not have days like this. And that was in response to a question about his inconsistency. So what he came back and said was, Well, I've tried I've tried to be consistent and that doesn't work for me. Because when he tries to be consistent, he starts to play a more safety-first style of cricket. He's out for low scores and he's consistent, but he's consistent in scoring low. And what he's really saying here is the England management team are encouraging him to go out and play his shots, knowing that once in a while it will come off like it did this time and he'll score what could have been a match-winning innings apart from the weather. And other times he won't. And everyone's happy with that. So I think that's a little insight, a little window into the philosophy of the of the England team. It's interesting, isn't it, at a, at a team level, a cultural level, uh, where we've talked in this podcast so far about how England have tried to create that environment where people are able to process and deal with apprehensions or fears they might have around failure, for instance, inconsistency. I guess, is where you have 
some moments where you fail and other moments where you're successful. So there's there's a cultural element to this, which is around supporting him and creating an environment where he can still go out and take risks and try and flourish and be himself. But there's also an individual element to this, because this is, of course, not an environment that they're in all of the time. They're in different environments back with their counties and under different pressures and and they all arrive the england team with a lot of history too so i'm quite interested in a player how a player like zach crawley has processed that inconsistency and found a way to think himself into a a positive frame of mind and i guess one of the factors that's really a great resource for people in these circumstances is just their imagination their ability to think of themselves being different, to be able to have a dream about how they're going to play the authentic them, the authentic way I play, and to be able to imagine themselves playing in that way. And for that imagination to become strong enoughly implanted into their memories, into their beliefs about themselves, that it becomes the potential for a reality if you never had that dream, if you couldn't use your imagination so actively, then how could you become authentic to that kind of player that maybe Zach Crawley was when he was 14 or 15 before all the pressure came on? And 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 really, he's, he's sort of rediscovering or reimagining now that he's representing England. Something you've mentioned in previous podcasts is around the narrative that the team has about itself and I think what you're touching on there or what you may be touching on there is the narrative that that us as individuals have about ourselves and I remember in my early days of studying psychology and reading about narrative theory and all of that kind of stuff and I remember a quote that said something like we're all a product of the stories we tell about ourselves and it sort of taps into that a little bit that if Zach Crawley is telling himself a story that this is who he is and this is what he does, then and he believes in that story, then he's more likely to go out and live that story. So this is perhaps what we're seeing. We're, we're seeing a player that's saying, look, maybe I am inconsistent, but on my good days, I'm very, very good. And that's what my team want from me. And so I'm quite happy with that. They're quite happy with that. The team have made a psychologically safe environment within which for him to tell himself that story and to become that person. And and that's what we're seeing. The slight irony of this, of course, is that in telling himself that story and behaving in the way that he's doing, he's actually become... I, I, this is an incredible stat. I'm, I, I probably need to double check this, but this was from the Test Match Special statistician so i can't go to much higher authority than that and he said he's the first opening batter in ashes history for england to score 30 plus in the first innings of the first four test matches so that's okay 30 plus isn't a huge score but it's consistent and so maybe there is consistency as a byproduct of this whole process so when you set out to make consistency the end result that's where pressure starts to build and that's where you start to do things that perhaps you wouldn't normally do. When you set out to not worry about consistency, but that just becomes a byproduct of the behaviours, 
maybe freeing Zach Crawley up to be the best he can be and accepting that won't happen every time. The consistency just happens to appear as a byproduct. So that is an interesting stat. So actually, he has been consistent. He has yeah. been very successful. It's just that the the ambition is much greater. And I guess that's true for a lot of sports people generally and people in life is that when you look at it objectively, you can say, well, you're hugely successful. But the experience for them personally is that I'm not successful. And there's something here which is about how fear changes the tone or the quality of your experience of success. So if you are afraid of being judged, if you are afraid of being inconsistent and therefore being judged for that, maybe even when you are successful, it doesn't feel the same. It doesn't feel as joyful and as satisfying. And I think part of what, you know, that that quote that you said from Zach Crawley is telling me is that he's by accepting the way that he plays and allowing that to define what success looks like for him, that that's meant it's a more joyful experience for him generally. And when you have more joyful experiences, what you start to do is you'll try more things, won't you? You'll try and do some things. So you'll start doing some things that perhaps you wouldn't have done when you're in a more fearful environment. And also, don't forget, you'll stop doing some things that you might have done when you're in a more fearful environment. And and I guess in this context, that's the forward defensive shot, which is, seems to have been more or less written out of the game by by the current England team. That's not really what they're looking for. And so stopping doing some things perhaps that were never your strength, that were never part of what you loved about playing the game is is a really positive experience for, for players. And this fits in with a narrative coming from the England team as a whole, which is we, we've heard this sort of sentiment mentioned a few times that the... They're picking players for what they can do on their best days, not not for what they can do every day. So, and, and in some ways, you might say, well, that's a bit of a weird statement, isn't it? We're only picking players for what they're capable of doing on their best days, and we accept that they won't have their best day every day. Uh, and in some ways, that seems like a weird statement. But when you think about, A, how that removes fear from individuals, because... We're saying to individuals, you know, by definition, your best day isn't going to be every day, but we just want you to go out there and try and have your best day. And if you do, you do. Great. And if you don't, you don't. Okay, that's fine. That removes the fear from the individual. But also, from a statistical point of view, you've got 11 players. You don't need them to all have a best day to give yourself a chance of winning a test match. You probably need two or three to have their best day on any given day. So if you look at the England scorecard, actually, it was actually a reasonably, it was a very powerful scorecard. But take the two top scorers, Crawley and Bairstow, they both had their best days, probably their best days of the whole series. Yes. And they they contributed massively, those two. They contributed nearly 300 of the 500, of the 600 runs. So they contributed half of the runs by having their best days. So... It's a it's an interesting proposition, really. It is, and I'm I am interested in how difficult this transition is for players. 
and and Bearstow might be a good example because obviously Bearstow's had quite a lot of criticism this this summer, particularly about his wicket keeping and some of the errors he made in the earlier tests. And he seems to have been able to battle his way through that, and his keeping has improved, and his his batting has obviously now really come come to the fore. But that what we don't hear in the media is what what the journey's like. Because it's not easy to face your fears, is it? It's not easy for individuals to go out. And we know this from all the sports people that we've worked with. It's much easier to run away from your fears. And a lot of the fear that we're talking about here is fear of being judged. It's not really about the fear of performing. It's about the fear of being judged for the way in which you perform, the fear of being humiliated, the fear of being laughed at of being ridiculed of of people who you care about but even more often people who you don't even know on social media putting in some barbed comment about you and then you read it and once it's in your head you can't you can't get out of your head so that i think is the natural position i think that's the human condition i think we're pre-programmed to want to be included and for that inclusion to really matter and for us to be really hypersensitive to whether we're being included or not. And and therefore, the fear of being excluded, of, of, of being humiliated is really present and real for most people. So to face up to that and to re reimagine yourself, to think of yourself differently is, is really quite a challenge for an individual. Now, of course, I think what we're saying here is that the England initiative has been to change the culture so that that becomes the expectation. And actually, to be included, to be one of us in the England team is to face that fear and is to deal with it in a different way and to, to sort of re, reframe your performance in a way that removes the barriers to actually performing, you know, sort of changes that fear. So now we're using that desire to be included to change beliefs about about fearfulness and that's that that's got the potential to be really powerful but there must be a point a tipping point and i wonder when it happened maybe quite early but there must be a tipping point at which people have to either buy into that or or, or not buy into that and just last thought on that is is of course once you get past that tipping point once Fear is something that you can talk about openly and you can imagine replacing it with something different. And you've got a sense of purpose and a collective sense, a collective belief in that purpose. Then your relationships with other people change. And you move to a whole new depth of relationship with people because you're in that together. And I wonder to what extent that tipping point is, is experienced at an individual basis versus a collective team basis. I'm reminded of the story of last year where Bearstow was batting, I think it was just before T in one of the tests against New Zealand, and Stokes was at the other end, and Bearstow ducked under a bouncer. And Stokes wandered down the wicket and apparently said to him, what are you doing? And Bearstow said, well, it's just before T. I want to avoid getting out. That's a sensible thing to do. So they bowled a bouncer. They've set a trap for the hook. So I've ducked. And apparently Stokes said to him, you're in this team to hit sixes off off balls like that. I want you to be hooking all of them. 
And Bairstow was like, well, what if I get out? And Stokes is like, don't worry about that. That's not your problem. So, yeah. and then Bairstow after T went on to hit one of the fastest hundreds in test history. So is there something there about that was perhaps Bairstow's individual tipping point where he experienced almost being given permission, being given permission by one of the senior management team to say, this is how we live it. We're trying to create this this culture of no fear, of being authentic, of playing the way that you play, and this is living embodiment of it right now. You you hook those you hook those balls for six, and if you get out, don't worry about it. And we're not going to drop you if you get out. We're not going to leave you out next time if you get out. Because yeah. but we will leave you out if you don't start hitting the sixes, or if you don't start trying to hook the ball. You know whether you hit six or not. If you if you if you're not hooking the ball, that's not what we want. It takes me back to an interview last summer when England were pay- playing Pakistan. And, of course, England went out and won for the first time in Pakistan for decades, decades and decades. And so this was when we really started, or the commentary teams really started paying attention to the so-called Basball revolution. And there was a particular interview where... Michael Atherton and Nasser Hussain were sitting talking about this this cultural change. And Hussain talked about some work that he'd been doing where he'd been working with Sky TV to put together a program and uh, 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 about success and leadership. And as part of that, he talked to Jurgen Klopp about what happened when he arrived at Liverpool. And he also talked to, to Paul McGinley about the the golf Ryder Cup, thank you. He talked to Paul McGinley about the Ryder Cup. And Jurgen Klopp talked to him about when he arrived at Liverpool, he said all that they were interested in was mistakes. And he had to talk to the whole organisation and turn it on his head by just saying, look, mistakes happen in football. It's part of football. If you can't accept that you're going to make mistakes then really we've got nowhere to go with this. And it was a similar story with with Paul McGinley where he talked about having a 10-foot putt at the Belfry and Sam Torrance met him at the bridge as he's going to the hole and he had a big smile on his face and he was just said, just said, well, enjoy it. This is fantastic. This is why we play. You're going out ninth on the singles day. Go and enjoy this moment. It's so much easier. When you have that attitude, when you have that person next to you who's saying that. So it's not, I suppose the point I'm trying to make is it's not just in a cricket environment where we see teams that seem to overperform or, or, or be able to turn a losing streak into a winning streak, a positive advantage. There is always someone in there who is doing something to remove that fear and to say, just go out and have a go. This is what we expect of you now. It's different to what was expected before. And, and and so there's a bit of a break from the past there. I think when when I worked in wheelchair rugby, often we would talk about mistakes and mistakes, how mistakes happened and why they happened and what we could learn from them and so on. And one of the things that I was constantly reminding the team, because you can get quite blamey about it, you can get quite like, oh, that was your fault or that was your fault. Or if you hadn't done that, we might have won and all that kind of stuff. 
and that can create quite a negative culture. So one of the things we talked about a lot, and I used to remind the team about a lot, is no is is intent. No one is going out there to deliberately make a mistake. That's not what anybody's doing. But mistakes will happen because we're playing against opposition teams who are very good. And one of the things they're very good at is forcing us into situations where we might not have too many choices or we might pick the wrong choice. And so a mistake or an error or whatever you like to call it may it may occur. But if you look at the individual's intent, they weren't trying to make that mistake. And this is all part of sport. So we're trying to sort of defocus the, the completely defocus the blame element out of a mistake and really just focus on is there anything we can learn from it and and move forward with that with that knowledge. Now in a fast moving sport like wheelchair rugby, what was very interesting about analyzing errors there's two really interesting things one is the individual error might not have happened might it, it you can't necessarily attribute it to what just happened with a particular player let's just say a player made a a, a pass that went to an opposition player what you have to really look at is what happened 30 seconds before how did that player get into a situation where their only option was to make a risky pass that happened to be intercepted by an opposition player. And that becomes then a team collective view of looking at how we're playing, the structure of how we're playing and how yeah. we play how we play the game to reduce the amount of errors that we're making. So that that was a that was an interesting aspect to it, this analysis of of how mistakes occur. And then the second point about mistakes is so the first point is about leading up to mistakes what happens in the in the lead up and analyzing that and the second point is individuals decision making process and when you look at that through a certain decision making lens what players are doing and you can apply this to cricket they they are scanning they are looking at what they can see and yeah. they are seeing what options are available to them and then they're applying what we call variables to those options. So this option here has got these reasons why it might be a good option and these reasons against it. And this option over here might be, there might be these reasons why it's a good option and these reasons against it. And we might be doing all of this in a split second, of course, assessing, noticing how many options we see, assessing the options for their level of risk and then choosing what we think is the best option and then committing to that option. And when you go through that decision-making process, you really break that decision-making process down with an individual elite sports person, you can often find where their decision-making is breaking down. And it might be because they're just not seeing enough options to start off with. In other words, their scanning isn't particularly good. And that could just be quite simply, they're not moving their head around enough could be that simple or it might be that their ability to assess the different variables might need some more work or the ability having assessed the all the variables to actually then come up with what they think is the best option that might need some more work so all of this around mistakes can be broken down quite scientifically really to to reduce mistakes and, uh, and make and make the team and the individual better. And I'm sure England are doing this. I'm sure England, for all this talk of Basball and a Cavalier approach, that you can clearly see that they are learning and improving. And that's what Ben Stokes keeps saying. They want to be an improving team. 
So there's this balance, isn't there? On the one hand, there's the boldness of the vision and there is the desire to express yourself fully and to be the player that only you can be, to show your talent, to let it shine through. So on the one hand, there's that. And on the other hand, there's mistakes and there's failures and there's errors. Hmm. And how you treat those failures will have a big impact on what you do next. Yeah. So I, I think the sort of thing that Klopp was talking about was where you become fixated on the mistake and the mistake then is used as a way to say, be less bold, mm. be more conservative, because I didn't like the experience of having my error spoken about. Mm. I didn't like the failure being pointed at me. And so what I'll do next time, you know, what did I take from that debrief? It's why many sports teams don't debrief immediately after a competition because it's there's a sense in which emotions are too high and what we'll move into is just blame and and yeah. i've seen that in in professional sporting environments where you know the manager that the, the team will come off the pitch and the manager just really wants to rant at, at the players and it, it's nothing to do with what happened on the pitch it's to do with their own sense of failure and and disappointment and they want to project it out onto the people around them which we see it all the time and you know anyone who's coached sport has also done it i'm sure i know i know that i have but if we can see failures as part of the education that's not to say that they're not painful in fact it might be that the education is hugely painful and you know it can be heartbreaking to 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 put yourself in a position where you think you could win something and then to not win it to not perform on the day, that can be really painful. But what do you do with that pain becomes the question. And 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 if you're in, in, in an environment where that's not used constructively as part of your education and giving you the passion to go out and do something better and, and, and to express yourself more clearly, if you're not in that environment, then it becomes really stultifying. And that's the experience that I think many athletes have. But But if you flip that round and you say, well, actually, you know, we're going to face up to our shortcomings. We're going to be very honest about that. But we're doing it to strengthen our desire to, for instance, not duck bouncers, but to to hook them. Then then that's a very different experience for players, I think, and and undoubtedly more enjoyable for them. And certainly my lived experience, lived experience in wheelchair rugby was we didn't call these things errors or mistakes. So, you know, if a player threw a ball to an opposition player, that was a turnover. That's technically what it's called. And so we would talk about turnovers. And then we would talk about, because wheelchair rugby is a dynamic team sport where you've got several players contributing all at the same time, four, in fact, we would then talk about, as I say, what happened leading up to that turnover and what can the team learn about how they performed in that moment or in the moments leading up to that turnover to improve? And yes, sometimes those conversations were perceived to be or were felt to be the living lived experience of those conversations were felt to be painful, perhaps by the person who had thrown the ball to the opposition and created the turnover. I say thrown, inadvertently thrown the ball to the opposition and created the turnover. And we used to always say, any conversation we're having from this point onwards is to make us better. We're trying to be better. It's not about criticising any individual. We we accept that turnovers will occur. It's part of the game. If we can analyse those turnovers and as a collective group improve our 
turnover rate in other words less turnovers and if we can work on an individual basis on some of the, the technical details about how to reduce turnovers we will be a better team and we will win more matches and that's that's the process that we follow you know and stick to the process and the the, the results will follow I was just thinking back to some of the conversations that we had whilst the wheelchair rugby team were working towards going to the Tokyo Paralympics and how you talked about there being key moments in that journey when some of the players who were particularly influential bought in to the culture that you wanted to develop, not just you, but being discussed and, and sort of built by the team and and the the transformation from those players from being perhaps skeptical to becoming advocates meant that you then had role models within the team that really made a difference to to the performance and to people accepting that that way of thinking and i wonder whether that's your recollection of what happened and also your thoughts about how that ties in with Ben Stokes and, and him acting as a role model? Well, I think what, what sticks out in my mind, it's interesting that you've asked that question because I do remember one or two particular moments where perhaps our most influential player who would always have, he knew, he knew the game very well and he would always have an opinion about anything we were analysing. And he would say a couple of times when we were really trying to change the culture, a couple of times he would say, unprompted by anybody, he would say something like this. What I'm about to say is not a criticism of any individual. What I'm about to say is to make us better as a team. So what he was doing was, you know, he knew that his voice was listened to and he knew that his voice was was important in the group. So by prefacing it with that statement, he was trying to create a safe environment to say, look, I am going to yeah. say something that may you may find hurtful or you may find uncomfortable to to hear but the reason i'm saying it is not to criticize you or not to criticize anyone in this room but to make us better as a team and i think when you've got a leader saying that people f follow people understand where he's coming from and think well if he's doing this i can do this as well and it creates really a culture of honesty as you remember in wheelchair rugby, one of our big sort of words that bound us together, one of our big identities, one of the big components of our identity was trust. And yes. I remember you and I had several conversations about this and trust is just a word, right? Yes, we trust each other. And yeah, that what, what, what meanings does that actually have? You know, how do you, what's the lived experience of trust? And you and I talked about this and I saw it, the, the lived experience of this actually in these discussions. It's where people can feel that they can be honest about saying something without fear of upsetting or destabilizing the team. And we saw this level of honesty and therefore this level of trust time and time again as we progressed developing the culture of the team to a point where it just became, it became the routine. You know, we were in meetings and people would say some things that you think, blimey, that was, that was quite forthright. But you look around the room and everyone's just nodding and going, yep, yep, no, good point. And you yes. think, well, we've we've cracked it, really. We've got to a point where we have a level of honesty, where people can say what they think and no one's sitting there going, oh, was that aimed at me? Oh, I don't feel very good about that. 
of course that happened occasionally of course we're all human beings and of course sometimes someone would get quite defensive but we would often call that out and say there's no need to be defensive this isn't a criticism of you this is about making the team better so we're always careful to reset that but i think when you get to that level you've got you've got a chance and relating it back to england obviously we're not in the in the changing room in the in in the dressing room but what we're seeing is ben stokes coming out and saying this is the way I bat. I try and bat my first 50 carefully and the second 50, I go for it. And that's my clarity. That's the clarity I need to bat. And and interestingly, he didn't do that. In the very first test, I don't think he did that. There was a, an innings where he played quite a reckless shot in early on and got caught out or got out. But that's that's the clarity he now has. And he's not saying to the... And this is a critical point. He's not saying to the England players, so therefore you all need to do that. You all need to bet back very carefully for your first 50. Then you can press the accelerator. He's simply saying, that's my clarity and I'm committed to my clarity. And then he's asking the question, what's your clarity? And what he wants from those players is an honest assessment of their clarity. So take Ben Duckett. You know, Ben Duckett's gone on the record saying, I don't leave balls. You know, I, yes. my, his lead percentage is like 2%. As an opening batter, that's crazy from a traditionalist point of view. But that's his clarity, right? And then every member of the England dressing room back that clarity. So once you've got the backing of the dressing room around your clarity and you're having these on, honest conversations about what your clarity is and what the ramifications of that clarity is, so the ramifications of and the consequences of Ben Duckett's clarity is he'll nick a few and probably get out from time to time. Same with Crawley. He will, Zach Crawley, will play these expansive shots and they won't always work out. But what we're looking for is players to have clarity and commitment to that clarity. So on their best days, they are they are the best. They produce a, a match-winning performance. And as I said before, you only need two or three of those in a test match to win a test match. As you were talking, I was thinking about what all the players seem to say about that environment. And you do get a sense that their spirits have been lifted, that they feel that they can express themselves in the way in which they they want to. And that's combined with a sense of not operating within your comfort zone, so pushing yourself to be even more authentically you. And obviously... To be able to do that, you need to be clear about who you are, why you're selected, what your strengths are. You have to spend time really exploring your strengths rather than your weaknesses. And again, that's quite counter to how much sport works. And historically, work environments for corporate environments as well. There's always been this thing, which is, what do I do to become a better sports person? Well, what I should do is I should find the weaknesses in my game and I should develop those weaknesses. And I should really try and, you know, well, my 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 defence's play is not very good. So, you know, that's what I need to do if I want to be an international cricketer. But actually, if you flip that over and you start talking about strengths and strengths here by strengths, what I mean is those things that energise us, the things that we love doing, that guess what? Who's, who's surprised to discover the things that we love doing are the things that we're good at. And part of the reason we're good at them is because we love doing them. And part of the reason we're we're doing them is because this is because we love it 
So if you focus on strengths, then you get a very different experience of being somewhere. So that's happening in a corporate environment. So there are a number, quite a large number of organizations now that talk about developing around strengths, about pulling teams together based around utilizing people's strengths, setting goals that utilize people's strengths, because they know that bringing passion and engagement into the workplace is so important if an organization is going to be successful in a fast paced, but but also you know resource challenged environment. That's the only way to go forward. Otherwise, work becomes stressful and a burden. But if I'm doing the stuff that I love and I have to work really hard at it and I feel good at it, then that's actually a fulfilling experience. So we see that happen in, in, in a corporate environment. And I think there's an element of, of what's happening with baseball that that's what's happening in this sporting environment too, finding those strengths and playing towards them. So where we're getting into here is in the realms of positive psychology and a sort of strengths-based model, which is, you know, a well-defined model where we are working with our realized strengths. In other words, the strengths that we understand to be our strengths and uncovering unrealized strengths. In other words, the things that we can do that we take for granted that everybody can do, but actually they can't. And we've got some strengths that, uh, that actually not everybody has. And those are the unrealized strengths that often get pointed out to us. Oh, how, how are you so good at that? Oh, well, I just am. Well, not everybody is. Oh, I didn't realize that. And we, we start to uncover these unrealized strengths. So we start to identify our strengths. And what's very interesting about these these realized and unrealized strengths is they come relatively effortlessly to us. If you think about some of the tasks you do at work, there'll be some things that you're good at and you do them without effort. And those are your realized and unrealized strengths. The the strengths that you're the things that you're good at that you have to work at, they're 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 not these they're not at the top of the line they're not these realized or unrealized these strengths these are learned behaviors these right. are areas where you know you're weak but you've learned how to be good at them now typically those are and i think about i don't know doing my monthly accounts I, I, that's not a strength of mine but i've learned how to do it do i enjoy it not much is it easy for me to do not really it's quite hard it's cognitively speaking but i've learned how to do it and that's a learned behavior. And then I've got my weaknesses. And what I love about the positive psychology approach, and you could argue that this is where England have taken this, is don't worry about your weaknesses. Don't, you know, we, we, we live in a society where it's like, oh, there's a weakness. You better strengthen that. And the positive psychologist broadly, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of making quite a, a broad statement here, but broadly the positive psychologist will say, don't worry too much about your weaknesses. Don't don't spend your time strengthening those. Focus on your strengths. And if you think about that from, let's take an entrepreneur. So an entrepreneur has got a great idea for a business, right? And they think, right, there's something here. I've, I've got some real knowledge in a particular area. I've got a great idea of how to apply this knowledge. I think it will make some money. I think it will help society, whatever. I'm going to build a business. So I know all about this subject area. And I know how I'm going to turn this idea into something tangible, but I'm going to need to put a company together. So I'm going to need to employ some people. I'm going to need to pay them. Probably at some point, I'm going to need a lawyer. So do I now go out and train myself in law? Do I now go and train myself in finance? No, I'll hire all those people in because I don't need to be that. 
I don't need to be strong in those areas. I can buy that experience in. And uh, so you create a company, you create a team where the strength of the team is in the strength of the individuals and how they combine together to create an effective team. And so we see that in business all the time. So, and yet at an individual level, particularly in sport, we might say to an individual, there's a weakness, you need to improve it. That's right. And I'm wondering whether the England cricket team are sort of taking that more positive psychology approach almost without consciously thinking about it, but saying, just play to your strengths, guys. That's all you need to do. Well, don't worry about your weaknesses. We we want you on your best days. So if we what your thoughts if, are if on we that. built on that, so if that's our hypothesis about what's happening in in the England camp, and you were to take it to the next level, then what do you do when you start noticing things that are going wrong, problems, but we don't really want to call them problems. So a solution-focused therapy approach would be in solution-focused therapy, they use what they call the miracle question. And the miracle question is, imagine that you were to wake up tomorrow and things were to be how they, how you want them. So the problem has gone away. The thing that you wanted changed has disappeared. What would you notice? What what would you see? How would you know that things had changed? And really focusing on those positive outcomes that you want to see, which of course might be the absence of some, some negatives, or it might be the appearance of some new positives. But but by looking at the solution, you don't spend your time delving into who did what wrong. Hmm. And that maintains and builds that sense of energy and connection around this this central central proposition for this for this team potentially and i think that's a really interesting idea and i think that i'm not sure whether the england cricket team did that i'd love to think that they did if they don't i think they should i think it's something that really should transition into sport i i remember having a conversation with some some friends about 20 years ago and I was involved in coaching rugby and my friend was doing corporate coaching and he was saying, you know, why do you in sports coaching try and teach people? Because when we look at executive coaching, we're not there to teach people. We assume that they will find the best solution for them. What we're there to do is ask questions and to help them imagine a different way of being and then to create that and enact that different way of being different ways of handling the problems that they experience so it's not about telling it's about inquiring and that that's where the power comes from and the power comes from there because people are generating solutions which are their own solutions and we are much more likely to follow through on a solution which is our solution now that's not to say that they don't want to go and seek some expertise to learn how to do something different, but they're seeking it at that point because you've allowed them to drive that conversation through your inquiries. And he said, that's what we do in executive coaching. Why don't you do that in sports coaching? And I said, well, sports coaching is different. You know, it really is because, well, the thing is that I'm an expert and they're, they're young <laughs> and they don't know, they don't know what they're doing. And so really it would be quite mean of me not to share my expertise with them. So this is, this is my obligation and my duty 
as a sports <laughs> coach. And do you know what? I wasn't saying that because I was out of step with what people thought in sports coaching. I was saying that because I'd just been on an RFU coaching course and I knew this to be the wisdom, the perceived wisdom or the received wisdom within rugby at the time. And I look back now and I think, wow, how things have changed. You know, now we're using questions. There's gamification in in sports coaching to enable people to learn through their own discovery there's a lot more game-based learning around skill acquisition so that you know all we're doing is putting some constraints in and then we're helping people to think about it and problem solve for themselves totally different way of coaching which looks a lot like what my friend was suggesting 20 20 years ago <laughs> has has now occurred in 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 the sporting environment and so now when i look at what's happening in in corporations where i see strengths based development i see solution focused problem solving and and i see a, an increasing desire to build a strong coherent collective identity within organizations or at least the ones that are successful and growing and to, to be able to imagine themselves in the future the way that they want to be. And I wonder whether that will come to 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 sport too. And maybe we're just ahead of the game here, Dave, or maybe this is what's happening in some aspects of sport and maybe that's what's happening in the successful teams already. Yeah, I think that's probably true, that that is what's happening in the successful teams already. And, and the key word or the key phrase, I think, that I picked up on when you were talking there is skill acquisition. I think what the best teams do is hire in experts who can help people to develop and acquire skills. So when I'm working on a psychological basis, psych psychology and improving your mindset or improving your mental performance is about skill acquisition. It's, it's not about telling someone how to think. It's about giving them the tools so that they can develop their thinking. It's about it, probably the most I would do is just explain how the human mind works. And yeah. once they've got those basic tools of how the human mind works, that basic understanding of how the human mind works, then they can apply it to themselves. Then they can start to get insight into themselves. And then they can start to work out solutions for managing themselves in a more productive, productive way. So the, it's and if you look at it technically or tact sorry if you look at it from a technical and tactical basis then the the coach who understands the sport is providing some knowledge maybe some input but is helping the players to work out for themselves how to develop their their physical skills and you know we saw you see in tennis all the time there there's you know potentially a particular way of serving the ball but you have someone like John McEnroe who figured it out for himself. And yeah. I'm sure there's countless tennis players who figured it out for themselves and didn't have coaching, but they've got their own method. And same in golf, players have developed their own swing and so on and so forth. So all you're doing as, as somebody involved in sport really is, is, as you say, facilitating the thinking and facilitating the conversations to help them work out their own ways to improve. And by doing that, they own that. The, the individuals then own that and take responsibility for that it's and what you see is a greater level of ownership and a greater level of accountability from the individuals about what they're doing rather than coming off and saying well i only did it like that because the coach told me to so i've had some conversations with someone i guess now you'd call him a mental skills coach but a, a guy called bill beswick and bill beswick was 
really quite a pioneer in this in this area. So back in the early 90s, he and I don't know how he got into this position, but he he got to know Sir Alex Ferguson. And Alex Ferguson asked him if he'd come and share some of his sports psychology with the Manchester United football team. And so the story that Bill tells is that he went along to Manchester United and he really didn't know what to do. I mean, there are all these incredibly famous, successful footballers in the team and he he just didn't know how to get involved, really. So what he did was he went into the meeting and Ferguson introduced him and said, you know, he's here to help you with any mental problems that you've got. And Bill Beswick just said, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be in a corner of the canteen from this time until this time each day. And anyone who wants to talk to me, that's where I'll be. Come and find me. And he said he went and, you know, the first week he sat there and no one came and talked to him and it was like not the done thing. And and then one day Roy Keane came over and sat down with him and said, right, OK, you're sat here on your own. What's this all about? What does it involve? And they started chatting. And Bill is a great storyteller and raconteur and he uses stories as a way of of helping to think differently about things. And after that, Roy Keane engaged with him and started seeking out his assistance. And then once Roy Keane, the hard man of the team, said, I'm getting some value from talking to this guy, then other players went and talked to him as well yeah. and got some benefit. And and something that Aaron Walsh, who's the mental skills coach who works with the Chiefs in Super Rugby and with the Scotland rugby team, talks about is feeding the hungry, feed the hungry. So not every player is open. Mm to working with someone and and some environments mean that actually there's some stigma to having someone who can help you perhaps address things that you've been quite afraid of for a long time but there will be some who are hungry who want to have change who recognize that their capabilities are are not flourishing the way that they're approaching the game at that time and that's where you start and then once you get a few who who buy in then it becomes a bit more normal dan carter said that when he started playing rugby people thought there was something wrong with you if you went and talked to the team psych when he finished playing rugby people thought there was something wrong with you if you didn't go and talk to the team psych and and so you know there has been a much you know a real evolution in acceptance of the role of the mind and understanding how your brain works within sport. And what we're seeing, I think, perhaps with the England cricket team is that happening at a group level as well. And and certainly, you know, I would suggest that they're tapping into some insights into from social psychology and group level psychology about what's going on and using that as that trigger. So it's not just a role model, but it's a whole narrative about this team. We are the team that stands out because we handle very common situations differently to other teams. We've wandered a long way from cricket. <laughs> well, I'll bring it back because you, you started to bring it back to cricket. And uh, this was a quote from Bairstow after his 99 not out. He said this, he said, we've played a similar way all series. There's obviously been times in which it's worked and times in which it hasn't worked as well. But we haven't changed the way the process has been or the intense been throughout the series. There's times it hasn't worked, but we're sticking to our guns. Now, this was quite a defiant interview from Bairstow because he had copped a bit of flack for some of his wicket keeping earlier in the series. But a couple of interesting things there was the use of the word we throughout that. Yes. This was talking about him and his 99 not out. 
and he used the word we all the way through it. And this acknowledgement that there's times it's worked and times it hasn't worked. But then this sort of very sort of almost belligerent phrase at the end, we're sticking to our guns. And so there we can start to see the sort of living embodiment of of the sort of England psychology. I just wonder what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, and I think that that's and, and the language is really important. There was some research done quite some years ago looking at the successful candidate in Australian elections. And what they found was that the winning candidate in Australian elections, stretching back since the beginning of them having elections, so about a century earlier, the winning candidate, if you looked at their stump speeches, their regular speeches, the winning candidate, I think it was something like 85% of the time, had been the candidate who said we more frequently. It was as simple as that. The best predictor of whether you're going to be successful or not was the amount to which you said we. And we, myself and my colleagues, did an analysis of Trump versus Hillary Clinton's speeches. And Hillary Clinton used the word we about, I think it was 45 times out of a typical 1,000 word speech. And Trump used the word we I think it was 83 times in a typical 1,000 word speech. Mm. So he just is the master at saying, we, 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 it's not about me, it's about us. They're not coming for me, they're coming for you. I just happen to be the guy who's standing in the way. That's <laughs> that's what he says about his current you know, legal woes. So he really understands whether it's, whether he really understands, but he certainly knows how to use the language mm. of of collective identity. And I think what we're seeing with Bairstow is not a deliberate thing. I think it's a consequence, not a cause, of that sense of usness, that sense of togetherness. And that's I, very powerful. I watched that interview and there was no way he was consciously thinking about using the word we. That was just the natural flow of the words. Yeah, because so that's, that's what he meant. Because that's what he meant. And that's 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 in his identity already so, so once person. i start to think about us rather than me then you know lots and lots of things change mm. i did some work with the royal marines some years ago really interesting project and i was very lucky to to be able to get a lot of access to royal marines training and to spend some time in their commando training center at limpston limpston and one of the things that happens in Royal Marines training, so Royal Marines training lasts for 32 weeks. And the first 10 weeks or so is really spent ripping away an individual's individual identity. So a recruit's individual identity, their sense of self, their sense of competence as a person on their own. And actually, if you look at when people leave Marines training around about week 11 is where they have the biggest dropout rate, because at that point, the armor has been stripped away of these often quite belligerent, assertive young men. Now it could be young men or young women who who arrive. It's been stripped away, and that's the time when they feel at their lowest. But then what happens in the remaining 22 weeks is it's replaced, and it's replaced with a sense of us. And that's because if I want you to go out and get out of your foxhole and go and fight to save someone's life or, or or to fight for a cause then you really have to be putting us as more important than me otherwise you would never get out of your trench you would never put yourself at risk and th and that's how the military the military works so if we want people to really make sacrifices 
to put us first, then we need to change the narrative inside their mind and the way that they think about themselves and it to become a part of their identity. So here's some quotes. Here's some top quotes from Brendan McCullum and Ben Stokes. And again, just listen to the words they've chosen and the, the use of the word we. McCullum, we'll take losing a game if we get, give ourselves the best chance to win it. Now, he could have easily said, I'll take losing a game if we give ourselves the best chance to win it. But he's chosen the we. We believe everyone's fiercely competitive and wants to win. So we take the outcome out of it. When we're being challenged, that's good. We'll keep smoothing out the rough, rough edges and go again. And then Stokes, sometimes team will be better than us, but teams will never be braver than us. The reward you get for your work isn't what you get, it's what you become. And I think you can take that as the plural you, not the not the singular you. Yes. Because he was talking about the team again. So, and he says, we're trying to make test cricket as exciting as the short formats. If we can make a little indentation into the way other teams play in the game, that will not only do test cricket some good, we don't want it falling off the planet. It needs to stay around. We'll do everything we possibly can as a team to keep it alive. So time and time again, when they have opportunities to talk about what they're doing and, and the philosophy they're taking, the word we or us is is very close by. Yes, it's it's a really powerful motivator and and, and much more powerful than money or individual glory. Mm. And 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 I think that they're, they're, that's why they're able to stick at this. And and that quote about their purpose is is what gives them the resilience to keep going, even when things are difficult and perhaps they aren't winning matches. And uh, you know, to to come back to where I started, where we started, this is their first draw in the in the Brendan McCullum era, and it was a draw that only happened because of the weather. And I guess that. No matter how strong your togetherness, there are some things that that you simply can't overcome, and the weather is one of them. And and you know it's a shame that that should happen, but it really doesn't diminish what's what this team has been trying to do, and and clearly would have achieved a victory. The chance of coming back from that kind of deficit for Australia is 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 really very low, and and so really incredibly likely to have achieved that victory now there's one test left and that's a test to draw the series the the ashes may be retained by australia but the opportunity to draw the series is is still there and i think that that's something i just can't imagine the england team changing the way that they'll approach that match and i can't imagine them changing the way that they'll approach their next test series and the test series after and the test series after if nothing else, because what they've done, as as you've said, is that they've taken cricket from the back pages to the front pages. Mm. And that's what every sport needs in order to create new fans, new followers, new players, and to reinvigorate the sport. Indeed. And we're set up for a really interesting and potentially exciting game starts in a couple of days time in fact it starts tomorrow because we're recording this on Wednesday it starts on Thursday and it's at the Oval and if England win it then that extends their run of not having lost a home series to Australia since 2001 Australia are desperate to win it 
for two reasons. One, to win the series. As I said, they haven't done that since 2001. And two, and to sort of win the Ashes outright, because at the moment they are guaranteed to retain the Ashes because the worst they can do is draw the series to all. So they, there's a sort of a motivation here to win the series outright. So it's set up for a fascinating game. Both teams are talking about the win. The weather will play a role again. There's rain around. So it will play a role. I don't think it's going to be, looking at the forecast, as devastating a role as it was for Old Trafford. So I think a result is possible. But I also think that England especially will play the conditions and will need to push the game along to make sure there is a chance of result of a result, which is what they do. This is this is their philosophy and what they do. They take try to take draws out of the equation. So I think we will see a result in this game. But you asked me last time what I expected and I said, oh, I'm going to say Australia because I'm either going to be right or... So I'm either going to be right or I'm going to be happy. I think I said last time. Yeah. And actually what happened was it was a draw. So I wasn't right and I wasn't happy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that I said that Jimmy Anderson was going to get 10 wickets and that didn't exactly happen. No, but, that was but, a bold. That was a but, very but, very bold but, prediction. But it could have it could have been someone else. Anyway, what a great note to finish on and fascinating conversation. It was really good that we were able to range a bit more freely today and I'm really looking forward to talking again after this final test match and just seeing if we can draw some conclusions from this series of conversations before we decide what sporting environment or team we're going to focus on next and what different insights we can offer at that point. So thanks very much, David, for a fascinating conversation. I hope that the listeners have enjoyed it too. Yep, thank you. And we'll talk again after the fifth test. Thanks very much. Bye-bye, everybody.